This is the Strike Mash Boil podcast, presented by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. This week, Stephen is back to finish talking cider, and Nick judges a German pills with some serious problems and tells us how to avoid them. That and more, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Strike Mash Boil. I'm Marco, president of Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, and I'm joined by my co-host, Phil. Phil, happy new year. We made it to 2021. Uh, it kind of looks the same as 2020, honestly. Uh, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that uh, this year uh, turns around a little bit. Well, I, I at least have a drink. I'm, I'm priming. I know we're going to do a tasting in a little while, but I'm at least priming. What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking uh, a can of Mary uh, from Hill Farmstead uh, that I... Um, uh, this is probably a horrible thing to say, but I found in my uh, kegerator. Found so, it. Oh, yeah. because because you've got you know seventeen beers in your keg. You, I heard yeah, you got the seventeenth yeah, yeah. keg inside your kegerator recently. Tenth keg. Tenth Ten. Keg. Yeah. Yeah, Ten. yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um. You know, I do. Uh, I get beer from some people who go up that way, and I think I. This was from August or something like that. Um. Yep. Canned in. Uh, Canned in July, but it's still tasting great. It's been cold the whole time. Keep this stuff cold and it'll be great. Yeah, I wish I could try it. This is our third episode now doing virtual. And uh, so I can only look at your face through the computer. So uh, I'll, I'll marvel in your beer while you're drinking it in front of me. But I can't wait till we can actually get together and I can try it. I think by the time we were in 2021, we'd be out of this funk, but we're not. So we're, we're still doing the virtual thing. Yep. Uh, we've got Patrick and Steven back again this week. Uh, Patrick, what are you drinking? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so I'm drinking a rye porter called Total Eclipse, and it's brewed by Brewmaster Jack, and they were established in 2011. Uh, for those not familiar, they're out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I haven't had a Brewmaster Jack in a while. So yeah. they, their early IPAs were pretty decent. I used to really like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good beer. It's settling in pretty nicely. It's six percent ABV, so it's just right for uh, for this time of year, I think. And Stephen, are you drinking something good tonight? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering when these leg shackles are coming off, but uh, I got a uh, zombie dust here uh, now that I moved to the Midwest because I can get it fresh and in cans, and you know, it's at, a, at the local packy, so makes me a happy guy. You moved out just in time because we can get it in Massachusetts now. What? That's right. Zombie dust on the uh, on the shelves in mass. Manga, brave new world, yeah. Is Night Shift the distributor for that? I think they might be. Um, oh, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, but it's uh, I've heard it's it's so so. Um, not sure if we're getting the uh, older stuff and they're keeping the fresh stuff for out there, but uh, no, this is a product of uh, the lupulin threshold shift. Mm. People's uh, taste for IPAs has just shifted over time because zombie dust was pretty legit for yeah, a long time. It, but yeah. th- you know that's not a tradition. That's not a New England IPA. That's an American IPA. That is a different yeah. style, different ball game. Yeah, I'm not sure if you guys are looking at date codes, but I'm typically getting it at like two weeks off. So it reminds me of what I used to trade for. Um, but again, I don't know if it's shipping warm in a truck or. Or whatever, but yeah, I think it's 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 pretty simple. Well, uh, so I think we'll get rolling into the show. As always, we're going to start with our roundtable discussion. We're going to have our uh, beer tasting, and then uh, we've got to finish our conversation with Stephen about uh, about cider. So uh, let's let's get right into it. 
Yeah, so we're uh, we got a lot to talk about uh, this week. We've got Patrick and Stephen. You guys are back with us again, uh, you know, to have this conversation. So this week we're going to start by talking about the impact of joining a homebrew club. And so, uh, you know, you guys, Patrick, you're you're one of the newer members in the club. Stephen, you've been around for exactly the same amount of time that I've been in the club. Uh, we're the first club you guys joined, right? That for me, yes. Right, same here. Yep. Yeah. So like to talk about, you know, share with everybody, uh, you know, sort of the thought process you guys were going through when you were thinking about joining a club, uh, what your initial impressions were, and then, you know, summarize the amount of time you've been with the club and some of the things you've learned. And then we'll dive into it a little bit deeper. So uh, I got my my spark of starting homebrewing uh, going to the Blues and Brews Festival up at Neshoba Valley Ski Area. Oh, yeah. They still do that. They do. It was a good time, man. I bought the uh, the 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 VIP pass, which gets you into a back room with food and unlimited, you know, draft beers and stuff. Um, but in any event, um, I was walking around there uh, and and talked to a few guys who were brewing at the event, in between getting shitty and you know watching some really good music. So um, I thought it was like a really cool thing, and you know that planted the seed. I'd asked for a home brewing kit that Christmas, and I got it. And ended up making my first beer, which was a clone of Bell's Two-Hearted, which I think you can get in Massachusetts now, but at the time you could not. Um, and, you know, for, for better or for worse, it turned out pretty good. Um, and I brought it to uh, the first MBHBC meeting um, and that I attended. Um, the backstory of that is I went to uh, high school with a guy, or maybe two, who were in the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club. And we were talking on Facebook here and there and came up like, oh, you should go, you know, see this club. So I talked to some people and ended up going to uh, a meeting, which coincidentally was the first one that Marco ended up going to. Um, and that, as we say, is that. And then, you know, just it's been a long and crazy, I think, seven years now. What about you, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, uh, if you're a homebrewer and you're just starting out, I highly recommend joining a homebrew club if there is one close to you. So. Uh, I first started brewing three years ago, four years ago, really. Um, but I got involved with Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club in November of 2018. And being one of the younger members uh, heading into this, I knew I was going to be uh, on the less experienced side of things. I mean, I was really in my first real year of brewing. So going into my first meeting, I, I felt a little nervous because I didn't really have much to contribute to the conversations that were going to take place but i was so impressed with the homebrews that were being passed around uh from member to member for sampling and and just the feedback that everybody gave about everybody's brews uh was was i mean that was impressive all by itself right uh the way everyone could kind of deconstruct a, a, a beer dissect it based on its aroma, its taste, its aftertaste, whatever, um, that meant a lot to me. And I knew that I was with a group of people that really cared about the craft. And to this day, like, it's one of the best decisions I've made in, like, my early, like, true years of, like, true adulthood. And because this is a hobby that I care about, I am no longer nervous about presenting a beer to the club if I'm a little, uh, you know, not as confident about it. I know I can give it to everyone. And they can give me their true feelings on it, but it's they put a positive spin on it, a positive spin on it, and tell me like, this is what you should do. This is what's going to make it better. 
is very important for me because in my third or fourth year of like true brewing, um, I, I really need that. And I'm just, I'm still just as hungry now for the information as I was when I first joined. Yeah, I think this is, it's one of those things where, you know, I think back to when I joined uh, the homebrew club and, uh, you know, what, what I appreciate the most about uh, being part of a, a group of like-minded folks is, um, what Patrick and Steven talked about is you, you learn a ton, right? You, you, you have this vision of what you want to do in brewing and then it gets elevated and you're challenged and you, uh, uh, you get tons of feedback. You can give feedback, you get to try new things. Um, but what, and I, I, I won't speak to other clubs cause uh, the only experience I have is with ours, but you, you come for the brewing, you stay for the people. Like, the the group of of guys that we've assembled as part of this club is pretty unique and and it's it it's been uh, really rewarding um you know from a, a brewing and learning perspective but we just got a bunch of cool guys that you want to hang out with and and the the basis for the meetings that we have is learning and development that's part of the mission i would say for for the club is that we want people to learn we want people to provide feedback and get better uh, so we don't discriminate. You don't have to be at a certain brewing level to join our club. But um, the the notion of just being a decent person and a cool person that I want to have a few beers with that I can nudge a little bit and I can be a little competitive with. But we, we've got something pretty unique, and I think it's been really cool. And, and I, I, I can't say that for other clubs. So uh, hopefully other uh, clubs can share, say, say something really similar to that. Um, and I remember in the early days of the craft beer industry, you'd go to a brewery and you met a lot of really cool people. So there are still some really cool people. They've gotten a little pretentious the last few years and it's, it's gotten a little, a little choppy with, uh, the ugliness in the, in the beer world. But I think at least for the brewing community, the folks that get together and, and share the craft and share the appreciation of the craft and the hard work that goes into it, I think it's been pretty awesome for sure. And I love seeing, I love hearing about those young guys like Patrick that join the club and get a ton out of it. It makes me feel like we're, we're doing something we're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, uh, cult, you know, cultivating and, and developing this young talent and at the same time enjoying each other's company. Yeah. I mean, I think new guys are like essential to the club and, you know, I really look forward to, uh, you know, having their stuff, passing it around, you know, really concentrating on the mouthfeel, um, you know, <laughs> In typical Stephen fashion, it's all those about the mouthfeel with Stephen. Those young guys. The young man, guys in their mouthfeel. It's all about that lacing. And, and on the contrary, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, on the contrary, you know, like when I go to the club and I'm looking for, you know, what I'm looking for, I'm just like, tear me a new one, you know, give it to me hard. I don't want you to pull any punches. I want to know what I've done wrong, and I want to know, like, very bluntly, so – that's what I'll, I'll offer on that. You no, know? the holding back for Steven. All no in. No holding back, man. All in. Right. I just want to say one thing, like to Steven's point, like why, like we typically meet on Saturday afternoons, right? And you meet for like four or five hours at a time. Like weekends are precious. Like we all have full-time jobs. Like we need some kind of outlet. Let's not waste it when we go to this meeting. If I'm bringing a beer that I may not be confident in, or I could be super confident in either way, like I want people to tell me, like, what do you think of it? We have some simple rules to join our club. And for folks that ever want to think about joining the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, um, th there's a, a couple of simple criteria. Number one is, are you a decent human? 
we'll start there. Number two is if you bring a beer and it sucks, can you handle somebody telling you it sucks? Number three is if you try a beer and it sucks, are you willing to tell somebody it sucks? And if you can, if you got those three things, you're perfect for our club. Honest feedback, transparency, directness, but also being humble and genuine and being able to take it like Steven likes to take it. You know, when I uh, joined the club, uh, it was probably about almost four years ago now. Um, I was a little nervous about joining a uh, uh, just a, a kind of a drinking club. And I, I was I had been brewing with a group of folks uh, for um, I started brewing in 2010 and um, they all kind of, you know, got jobs in other states and moved away. And so I was kind of just left brewing by myself. And so I was looking for some folks who um, could help me keep developing and elevating my game. And I was nervous that I was just going to go and it was going to be a drinking club. And I wasn't really interested in that. And that first meeting, meeting Marco and TJ and uh, I think uh, Rick, that might've been Rick's first meeting. And then Nick was there. I got some fantastic feedback on my beers, but then tasting them much like I think Patrick's first experience, tasting all these fantastic beers and hearing the feedback and um, the community that really was there. It was, um, uh, it really is a community of, of uh, brewers and beer drinkers and, and um, but also hearing like constructive feedback of, you know what, how did you brew this? What were your ingredients? Let me see Beersmith on your phone. Oh no, maybe you should do this a little different. I bet you if you threw a little bit of Munich or Crystal or whatever it is, in there or what's your water look like are you doing water and then teaching you know tj holds a class every couple of years on on how to you how to deal with your water profiles and just kind of things that looked mythical to me like water water scared the shit out of me um and it's not that hard um you just got to dumb it down and that was the thing that i loved about you know or have loved about being a part of the club is just all these new things I've learned. And then, then guys saying at, you know, meetings, Hey, we should collab on a beer. And if you uh, really think about it in our club, especially we have uh, members that are, uh, you know, veterans that have been brewing for a long time, but that continue to learn new things. Like, I don't think there's anybody in our club that we would say is an expert. We have some amazing brewers and some really great beer that comes out of our club. Nobody's an expert. So the new guys that come in, uh, number one, I, I think they, and, and Patrick, tell me if I'm wrong, but um, don't get scared away or intimidated or or diminished because they, you don't have this vast knowledge like some of the other guys do. Like they're welcoming of those beginner questions and are happy to answer them. Like I see a lot of Facebook groups. Like if you join some Facebook groups that are specialized in something that you have these repeated questions and people shit on somebody for asking a basic question. Like it's, it's like the mob out there. And, and I, I don't think our club does that again. We, you can't speak to other clubs, uh, but, but I, I think that we've done a, a decent job of making people feel comfortable and blending the experiences, and then everybody's learning something new because the new guys bring some new ideas to the table. I'd say we all motivate each other as well. Like we all have at different points just put out some real rock stars. And there's been certain points in meetings where someone brings something for a competition. I'm just like blown away. Like it's commercial level, like, wow. And, uh, and that's when the questions start. Uh, so I'd say that we, we definitely – 
you know, I would say that there's a lot of guys in the club that have that have pushed me to elevate my game. Um, and I'm happy to share what I've learned from them with the new guy. You know, and it's not just beer in our club. It is uh, meat. It is cider. It is wine. It is. Um, does anybody make uh, some folks are doing some distilled stuff, too, um, regardless of its uh, questionable legality. But uh, it is a, it's. It's not just the homebrew beer club. It is a uh, equal opportunity fermented beverage club, and then at uh, and and a culinary extravaganza if you come to some of our meetings. And you know, I think uh, the highlight is our Christmas meeting, which I'm super bummed we did not have one this year. Uh, You know, the last couple years our Christmas meeting ends up being a uh, uh, you know one of the first ones I went to. Nick brought a couple jars of his oh, the eggnog his homemade eggnog which is a hard eggnog and he had vintages of yes eggnog. and i Did a had vertical thought, i had thought about making eggnog and so that next year i went home and you know a year later i made eggnog and brought that but it wasn't just me there were like three other people who did the same thing and so now we had nick's new versions plus his vertical and then all of our versions and now i've got a vertical of eggnog that i was hoping to bring to this year's uh christmas meeting that never happened um so it'll just have to wait for next year or well, let's make it a march meeting or something yeah, like yeah. that for march <laughs> we'll do nog and march nog and guinness uh clones yeah i think the moral for for folks out there that are thinking um you know i want to get into brewing i think that's great you know there's never enough brewers um, but if you're thinking about joining a homebrew club, I think that's a great idea. W- you know, again, folks that want to join Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, I said like sort of the criteria of being a person, but there are other steps that we ask people to take before we have them join the club. And it's for their mutual benefit. It's, uh, you know, join our Facebook page, be part of the conversation, l- let us know that you're a real person. But just show us that you're interested in brewing and you, you're, you're good with engaging in the conversation. Then we invite folks to come. We have a couple of public meetings a year. We invite folks to one of those public meetings. And you're not in the club at that point. At that point, it's for us to get to know. Again, we want to know you're a real person, but us to get to know you. Uh, but for you to get to know us, because it doesn't mean that it's going to be the right fit. Now, we've, we're batting 1,000 right now. People come to that meeting, and they're usually pretty excited to, to want to join the club. But I think it's important if you're going to join a club that, you know, Phil talked about it earlier. Some of these clubs are legit just, they're just drinking buddies. It's not about brewing. And and you might not be looking about elevating your education in brewing. You might just want to be looking for a Friday night or a Saturday night hanging out with the guys having beers and free beer, and that's okay. But I think it's important to go to that meeting, meet the club that you want to get with, and uh, and make sure that they're the right fit for you and that you're the right fit for them. That's what we do, uh, and it's worked out really great, and I think that's part of how we've been able to develop the community that we've got today. Yeah, and I'll just say this one last thing. like If you're a new brewer like I am and you're hungry to learn, please contact the homebrew club closest to you because that is the best opportunity to get hands-on feedback and honestly do a lot of collaboration brews. I've yet to do one. I, I am guilty of that, but I do plan on changing that soon. You hypocrite, you. <laughs> I know, right? But if if you're scared of asking an experienced brewer what you think could be a very simple question, but you don't know the answer to, 
if you ask them, chances are they're going to be flattered that they get to answer that question, right? It give it kind of pumps them up, like they know what they talk, what they are talking about, and that goes a long way for both sides. Torch me right up. And, and us brewers, we, you know, we always love the new guy to wash a kettle on our brew days. So, like, please come and, and brew with us because we need the extra hands. Especially if you're an asshole that brews, you know, four or five batches in a single setting. You know, it's <laughs> it's helpful. I don't know anybody who does that, Mark. No, no, no. Who are you talking about? All right, guys, thank you much, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you next time. All right, time again for this week's beer review. Each week, we're going to review a beer submitted to us by a member of the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club or you, one of our listeners. Our guest judge is going to walk us through the judging process as if this were a homebrew competition, and all they know is the category of the beer, which this week is 5D German Pills. Back again with us this week is our uh, resident national beer judge, the doc. Nick, welcome back. Great to be here. Uh, so you've got your score sheet. We, uh, we've got the beers. Let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, German Pilsner is a very interesting style. It was generally adapted from the um, Czech Pilsner by Germans. And um, what's interesting about it is a lot of people, they call it German Pils instead of German Pilsner, sort of distinguish it from the Czech Pilsner or Bohemian Pilsner. Um, it's sort of a, a nod to the Czech Pilsner is also sort of a sign of respect. So the, the German Pilsner... Uh, especially compared to the Czech Pilsner is generally going to be uh, very pale in color. It's going to be very um, kind of light bodied, um, much more bitter, um, much more hop flavor, hop character than the Czech Pilsner and um, is generally drier as well. Um, so uh, taking a look at the one that we have in front of us, uh, it's very crystal clear, uh, perfect color. Um, not much head retention on mine, but that also could be a carbonation issue. Regardless, that would likely get very high scores on the appearance. The nose itself is quite interesting. So the first thing I get is uh, a pretty common off flavor in a lot of lagers. Uh, so I'm getting a, a pretty prominent green apple or fresh cut green grass yeah, note. That's Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it is. I'm, I'm trying to figure out. It's so familiar but i couldn't peg what it is and as you're saying like that green apple fresh cut grass Almost like a green apple maybe a green apple jolly yeah Nature exactly type? it's kind of an artificial green apples jelly house described so the, the chemical compound is called uh, acetaldehyde and it's it's a it's a fault in beer that comes from um uh, pretty much bad yeast um, whether it's um, under pitching um, whether it's, um, bad nutrients, which generally is the case for beers, but, um, that's the most common cause of it. And it, it's a byproduct that the yeast will usually push out, but then clean up, clean, clean itself up, uh, uh as time goes on. Um, in this case that didn't happen, uh, likely this is attributable to, um, just not enough yeast, uh, yeast health overall. So, um, besides that note, I do get a little bit of the herbal hops in there. Um, not much of the Pilsner malt, maybe a little bit of a dough character, um, but that, that acetaldehyde definitely dominates uh, the aroma. So the taste itself. Yeah, yeah, this is why you're a BJCP judge, um, because like beyond that apple, I can't smell anything else. Like it's just like, it's, cool. it's just that fresh cut grass apple character. It's, um, it's quite prominent. And what's, what's really interesting with that character is 
with with a, a pale lager like this, there's nothing to hide it. So other types of beers, no. you you might have that character, but you can hide it behind either a roast character or a lot of hops. Something like this, it's so delicate. Any kind of, and that's why this this style is so hard to brew. Any kind of flaw is just gonna stick out like a sore thumb. And I mean, that's what you have here, unfortunately. Um, so the taste itself, again, I, I get that acetaldehyde in the taste. I mean, it's it's quite prominent. Um, oh yeah. The the malt itself, um, it, it's very clean, almost too clean. Um, it doesn't really have that typical bready pilsner malt character. It's a little bit there, but it's a, it's a little bit weak as well. Um, there's definitely a hop character there, quite herbal, and um, I can just tell. To, I don't mean to jump ahead, but like the mouthfeel, it's a little undercarved. So that crispness and uh, that bitterness is, is it's a little bit low, and it's kind of lacking a little bit. Um, it almost has like, um, man, it's almost like you ever have one of those, uh, like kids apple juices that are half juice, half water, which it, it, t- it tastes like a watered down apple juice to me. Like that's what my son drinks. <laughs> we water down. Yeah, yeah, that's, apple that's juice. literally what I yeah. get from it. Uh, Phil, do we know what the ABV is on this one? Uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. Um, cause it's almost like a 3% beer that has that that really prominent green apple flavor to it. Yeah, and again, I think not having proper carbonation hurts. I mean, this is a style you really need that carbonation to allow that that dryness, the crispness, the, the bitterness to kind of shine, and sort of miss, missing that. Um, I will say it, it does taste pretty attenuated. Um, it finishes quite dry, which I, I really enjoy. Um, but I agree with you, Marco, that the mouthfeel is, is, is pretty low, which is generally okay with this style. You generally don't want... Um, sort of a, a high mouthfeel for a German Pilsner. It should be crisp. Um, uh, Nick, in, in this off flavor, so you, when you have a beer that's oxidized, you have impacts. So you have the, you know, sometimes the cardboard flavor, but also impacts things like the color appearance. And it'll just like wipe away some cat, like hoppiness. It'll just clear that out. Does this off flavor do that with the maltiness of a beer like that? Like, does it just change the structure of a beer or is it just producing that green apple flavor? Um, yes and no. So, I mean, oxidation can definitely cause this kind of fault. Um, um, but it, it's sort of hard to say. I, oftentimes with oxidation, you, you generally see a color change in the beer, um, even if it's a slight color change. And the color looks pretty good. If it was pretty dark, I'd be a little bit worried about that. Yeah, but what, what I mean is like oxidation like impacts more than just how it tastes does this side effect that we're getting the green apple is it strictly just a roman taste that you get that side effect or does it impact other parts of the beer like is is our low mouth feel a result of what's going on that's creating that green apple flavor yeah it it no i don't think so um i I think there's there's other faults i think what you're sort of getting at there's other things going on here besides acetaldehyde i think um, I think there's an issue with the recipe design. Um, I mean, to me, it, uh, I question whether or not Pilsner malt was used in it and not something cleaner like a two-row. Um, it is sort of missing that character. So um, just to remind myself, I, I looked up um, sort of the causes of acetaldehyde. And um, like I said, um, not pitching an appropriate amount of yeast, not oxygenating the wort. Again, this all goes to yeast health. Um, uh, racking the beer off before fermentation is complete, um, oxidation, sanitation issues. So all very common things that could cause, um, uh, this problem. So, um, 
but yeah, it, it's sort of hard to kind of get past. But yeah, the, there's other components there that I don't think acetaldehydes have an effect on. I think those are those are other issues as well. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, overall, it, I mean, it's not that bad of a beer. As bad as that, if you take away the acetaldehyde, um, it's 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 again, it, it looks good. Um, the, the components are there. I can tell. And as a judge, you want to try and recognize that. So, I guess maybe I'll touch upon this a little bit when you when you have a sort of a I guess so-called bad beer or beer that's not to style. When you're judging this beer, you want to be as um, uh, helpful as you can. So the whole point of judging in the competition, um, yeah, you want to win and you want to provide good feedback, but you want to provide good feedback for the bad beers so that they can prove um, their brewing. And so in this case, you know, I would point out, this is what I detected and here's ways that you can sort of counter that, right? Um, so that's exactly what I would do in that score sheet. So to summarize, uh, if I was going to give this beer a score, um, well, uh, before before you get to that, sure. Uh, so, in addition to maybe giving them some, you know, giving the person that brew this beer some some brewing advice, like, you know, don't you know, try to add a little bit more yeast, add oxygen, yeast starter, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, would you also make a recommendation to put it in another category? So, take the acetyl. Mm, you know, I, I have a hard time saying that word. The green apple, yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> the green apple stuff, if you take that out of there. Um, I almost feel like it's more of like an American adjunct lager than a German pilsner. Would you say to them like, hey, this, you know, clean up some of those off flavors with your yeast, but your recipe seems like it belongs more in this category than this category? Well, it's funny that you should mention that because uh, American lagers are one of the few styles where you can actually have a little a bit of acetaldehyde and get away oh. with it. Now, not not to this level, right? But um, yeah, to, to, right. to get back to your question, yeah, it's something that that one could consider um, for something like this. I wouldn't because clearly they're trying to brew a pilsner, and you you can kind of see what the the intention is. Now, if the intention uh, is obvious that that's not what they're trying to go for, or maybe they're a little bit confused, or they were kind of going between two different styles. You could give a suggestion, but for something like this, there's 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 too many hops already to be uh, American lager, so I, I would never suggest for them to do that. Um, and they're clearly intent on brewing this kind of style, so I would just encourage them to kind of uh, work on their their sanitation and and, and improvements to kind of uh, take care of uh, the issues that are in the beer. Yeah, that's great. Um, so yeah, so to give a score, I'd, I'd probably give it, um, probably a, a 28 for me, um, which is, I think generally fits in the good, if I recall, right. I think 25 to something is, is, is technically good. So I think it is a good beer. Um, I think it's, I think that that range is good, but has, um, flaws and it's not to style. And that's how I, I would, I would, I would kind of, um, summarize this beer. Is there, um, uh, is there a floor to a score that you'll give? Like, do judges uh, generally try not to be offensive on score sheets? Yeah. In fact, um, <laughs> if you ever get a score sheet from a judge who's being offensive, you should definitely contact the competition organizer because that's very inappropriate, and they'll typically not be asked to judge again. So the our, our I guess our, our floor for judging is what we're always told is um, don't go below a 13. So, and that's what most competitions are. Some will be a little bit different. Some will say don't go below a 17, but typically 13 is the number. And if it's a 13, that means it's just straight undrinkable. And at that point, you're writing a lot of things to improve on. Uh, it's usually a problem with recipe design, 
lots of flaws, um, completely infected beers like that. And so, I mean, you just, you know, you try and provide some pointers and help them out. Um, but you generally don't talk too much about the beer itself because if it's that bad, there's really no feedback you're going to give them that's going to help them. I mean, at that point, they need to go back and relearn to, to brew properly um, or typically to check their sanitation issues. So, I mean, good to know, right? Because when we decided to start doing this podcast, we know that not every beer we're going to get is is going to be great. And so it's the same thing when you're judging in a competition. Not every beer is going to be a great beer. Um, so for people that may have some reservations about just being shit on uh, by entering a beer, but they're looking for feedback, this is good context to know like, yeah, you're going to get a low score, but it's the feedback that you're, you're going to get is intended to be constructive so that you can get better the next time. Uh, and if you're not getting that, uh, you should let somebody know about it because that is not the intention of the competitions. They're meant to be, um, to build you up and, and get you to improve, not to shit on what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. The comments are more important than the score itself at the end of the day. Uh, unless you're, if you're scoring like high thirties, then score matters probably more because at that point you don't need that many improvements, but mostly most people fall within like the low thirties range and there's always some improvements that could happen there. And generally they're just ways to improve the beer to style um, as opposed to having significant flaws. Anything below 30 generally um, are beers that have pretty significant flaws that have to be addressed. So that's, that's sort of how I, I think about it and sort of breaking up the, the sort of um, areas of, of ways to score a beer. So you're making me think, and this is a little bit off topic, but I feel like you have a, uh, a Dave Portnoy philosophy in how you're scoring beers. Like, you know, when he does his pizza reviews, nothing gets a 10. You're like, nothing's a 50. Uh, he remembers the highest pizza rating he's ever done. Do you remember the highest beer rating you've ever given? Oh boy. Great question. I'm pretty sure I gave a beer a, a 48 before and I, I, I don't recall what it was. Um, but I, I feel like I've I've given a few beers above a forty five. Anything above forty five are really some of the beer, best beers you ever had. But there is an old adage about you can never give a beer a fifty, and it's just one of those. Um, I don't know if it's an inside joke, but it's a it's a thing in BJCP where if I'm ever with a judge who gives a beer a fifty, I'll, I will look at them strange and I'll be like, you know, what's wrong with you? There's you can't you can never give a beer 50 because there's no such thing as a perfect beer it's, it's one of those kind of old adages um so well, dave portnoy he said uh or he says that if you give you can't give a pizza a 10 because what happens if you have a pizza that's better and it can't right. be better than a 10 yeah so he's always like i think nine eight's the highest score he's ever given yeah. uh, but he's like nothing nothing can be a 10 yeah yeah I, I think that plays into it as well what about a beer like um <clears throat> Uh, Fuller's Extra Special Bitter or Pilsner or Quell, the beers that created the style? <laughs> really great question. Right. It's a good thing that BJCP um, is only for home brewing and not commercial. Because <laughs> then uh, if you put a, if you could put a commercial beer in front of a judge, uh, something like Pilsner or Quell, they'd probably find ways to destroy it, even though it's considered the prototypical um, uh, check logger. But um you know, I've always wanted to do that. Can I just tell you, like, there are plenty of beers out there that you can just yank a label off and submit yeah. it. And I've always wanted to just throw in a commercial beer that I know is a classic example and just see what happens. Because it's so subjective, the taste, right? It's so subjective. And then there are so many variables 
on um, you know what somebody tasted before you're like what order in the flight you are so what they tasted before um, you know how long it's been sitting at room temperature like there's so many variables I was always I'd always been curious when you have the epitome of a style or somebody that basically created the style what happens if uh, you had a BJCP judge blindly like truly blindly judge it yeah, I mean, and the excuse they'll give when they shit on that beer is, oh, that, that beer is three months old and came from overseas, so it's not a true represent- representation yeah. of style, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always excuses built in for that kind of stuff. All right, well, this, is, this was great. We got a little off tangent there, but I, I think it's good to know that you're listening, uh, and whoever made this beer, I'm sure, is listening to this. Um, they're not always going to be winners, but the, the point is is getting that constructive feedback trying it again, taking the advice and, and trying to make a better beer next time. So Nick, we really appreciate you taking the time with us. Yep, thanks for having me. If you like what you've been hearing on our show, hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast service. And if you have any ideas or feedback for us, leave us a review or shoot us a DM on Instagram at StrikeMashBoil. Or join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. All right, Stephen's back, so let's finish talking cider. Steve, what you're saying and what you've been saying throughout um, our discussion is um, really interesting. But m- me myself, I'm I'm by no means an experienced cider maker. I've um, and that's I've looked it up. That's the official term for somebody who makes cider. It's a cider maker. It's I guess apparently as simple as that. Uh, but you know, for I've been making beer for a really long time. I decided to dabble in cider a little bit. For for those that are thinking about it, like dumb it down for us. Like for that beginner, yeah, sure. What are the thing? What what's really important? Like, what do you need to focus on? Uh, give us the basic process. Like, you're going to make your first batch. What are the things somebody should care about? Because when we talk about brewing beer, we'll say like fresh ingredients, sanitation fermentation temperature like get those three things down you'll make a decent beer we'll worry about water worry about all that other stuff later right so so for sure so like for a beginner cider like if you really want to like rock it out um what i would do okay and this is something that's going to give you like the recipe for successes take all your beer making techniques and bring those over right like sanitation is important really important um, and you know, all of your, your other stuff, but you know, if we're talking like a, a typical five gallon batch here, right? Go to your local grocery store, wherever you can get five gallons of apple juice or cider, preferably cider, completely 100% preservative free. If there are any, you know, if there are any sort of, uh, chemicals in there, pasteurized, is okay. yeah, yeah, pasteurized not pasteurized, pasteurized is fine. Like pasteurized and unpasteurized will give you like a different uh, character depending on how you sulfate it. And that's the next step, right? Whether you go sulfated or unsulfated. Now what sulfates do is that they go in there and they inhibit yeast reproduction. So you're going to have um, an option there. And normally what that's used for is to take all the native yeasts that are in the cider and, and debilitate them in order to put your, you know, or uh, put an overcompeting yeast into that cider that will give it all the character. So you don't just let it rip wild. Um, so the normal way to start it, if you're looking for like a clean cider, is you want to put in one Camden tablet per gallon of cider. So that normally means five Camden tablets to start out with and some pectic enzyme. 
Now, when you get the cider from the store, it normally comes cold. So what you can do when you get the cider home from the store is take the five gallons of cider or juice, if they're cold, dump it in the fermenter, put five crushed Camden tablets in, and also put in your pectic enzyme at that point, right? The reason being is that the pectic enzyme has an interaction with the yeast that can lead to off flavors. So what you want to do is give that 24 hours for the pectic enzyme and the sulfates to act, right? To basically kill everything in there, right? Or, or at least destabilize enough everything in there and get that pectic enzyme working to drop it clear. That's not necessary. If you don't mind a hazy cider, skip the pectic enzyme, but it doesn't really have a huge effect on flavor as far as I'm concerned. Right. And when that happens, the next day, 24 hours later, you want to add probably about twice the amount of, of yeast nutrient that you would add for a, um, a beer to that. And you have a couple options here. If you're using dry yeast, okay, I would really heartily recommend there's this, this go firm stuff you can get for more beer. And it smells like fucking powdered corpses. But it is, it's good for like getting your, your, your dry yeast going and really like really strong. So you can use that if you're using a dry yeast. If you're using a, uh, a liquid yeast, you know, don't really worry about it. Starters are good, but the gravity isn't so high that it's really going to make that much of a difference. Um, and I'm not sure if you want me to sidetrack here into like the different types of yeasts, beer yeasts that are, that I found are really good. But um, I would say that. The top yeasts are probably SO4 um, is a really good yeast. The High Stefaner strain is a really great yeast that 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 those wheat beer strains tend to really be good. But I think that what High Stefaner strain is is top notch. Um, SO5 is good, and as we had mentioned previously, the Cote de Blanc is is an awesome wine yeast um, that you can use as well. And all of those will produce uh, characteristics, you know, depending on what you like. And your temperatures, you know, you can end up with, like, a lot of variety there. Um, so, you know, there, there's that. Uh, but, you know, you, you throw the yeast in, double your yeast nutrient. I'm a big fan of Weiss yeast nutrient. So instead of a half teaspoon per five gallons that I throw in for a beer batch, I put in a teaspoon, and I'll toss in the yeast at that point. You can oxygenate if you really want to. I mean, 60 seconds of oxygen, I really haven't noticed a, a huge meaningful difference between the two, but, you know, it depends on your yeast and how healthy it is, and, you know, maybe that's the, the defining factor. Maybe you get a little bit quicker fermentation, but, you know, I, I would say the effects would be minimal on that. And then you just let it rip. Steve, are you worrying about off flavors similarly to that you would in beer? Like, you know, SO4 sometimes produces diacetyl. You're probably not running into that with cider, or do you? Not really. I mean, like, again, you're talking about, like, these really, you know, like these really easily digestible sugars that, you know, you hear warnings about where, like, these are going to get, you know, basically lazy because they're eating all of these, like, easily digestible sugars and they don't have to work on anything tougher. So I don't think the yeast gets stressed as much when they're tearing through this shit. And uh, you don't end up with it with, I haven't really encountered like off flavors like that. What I will say is that with some of the wheat like style ale yeasts, um, and especially with my mixed cultures, that there is a, there's a spectrum to the fermentation where the first couple of weeks, if you do like a normal fermentation, you can end up with a great cider. And then there's this middle period where it gets very bready and weird. 
And I think that's the point where you get this like malolactic fermentation where it starts doing this like advanced fermentation. And if you, if you rack it at that point, you're going to end up with like a pretty like, I don't know, the, the best way to describe it is like yeasty, bready, doughy kind of like flavors that you're going to get at that point. And those eventually like through an advanced fermentation get cleared out. And if you let it sit for an extended period of time, say like a few months to six months, like they clear up and then you end up with like a lot of complexity out of that. So you can certainly turn over a cider in two to three weeks um, and you can turn over a cider in a few months, which I've heard, which was what I was told. It's like, oh, you need a few months or more to, to turn over a cider. But there's that like twilight zone in between where like you're going to get like kind of like really bready flavors. And I don't know what causes that, but I, I assume it's the malolactic fermentation where there's like an advanced longer fermentation that happens that's much slower and has to get taken care of. And once it cleans itself up, you end up with a really nice complex end product. But, you know, again, there's like that, for me, it's been, there's either that two to three week cider, which is nice, young, fresh, everybody loves it. And then there's that longer, like three to six month cider, which, you know, again, is complex and, you know, really turns some heads, you know, and it depends what you're looking for. But that in between, I don't know, I just haven't had a whole walk in, in, in you know, that that in between time period of between a, a couple of weeks and you know a few months. All right, so so you've you've uh, chosen your fermentation length, you've chosen your yeast. Where are we going from there? Like, what, what, how are you finishing the process? So what I normally do is I just let it sit, right? And like when you're ready to go, right, you have to go, and when it's done, you get your choice of what finished product you want and how you're going to package it. Okay. If you're going to package it in bottles, I don't really think there's any option but to go with a dry cider unless you're going to back sweeten with unfermentable sugars, which uh, is not something I'm interested in. Um, you know, I mean, I would assume that would be like, you know, your stevias or whatever, like, you know, these weird kind of sugar options that you have for, for back sweetening at that point. Um, but dry ciders are great. And again, like if you do like one of these like more advanced fermentations, you've got to like a lot of weird apples or tannins or, you know, you've, you've got it dialed in. Like it, you can have an, an awesome, you know, dry cider. I started out making ciders semi-sweet and then migrated to off-dry and then migrated to dry because of what the people I was, I was sharing my cider with uh, wanted, right? And like most of them had like a more sweeter tooth when it came to cider. So I was adding a couple cans of uh, apple juice concentrate at the end. And each one of those cans of apple juice concentrate, I believe, adds like about six points of gravity. So if you add like one can of apple juice concentrate to five gallons of finished cider, you know, you might bump it up to like a 1.006 or 1.006. And likewise, and that puts you in the off-dry territory. And likewise, if you do two, right, you get that 1.012 gravity, which puts you in the semi-sweet category, I believe, of ciders. So you can do that. But to do that, you need to completely neutralize the yeast. And there's three aspects to that. One is temperature, one's additional sulfates, and one's potassium sorbate, that, that thing I told you to completely avoid when you're buying it, you can do to uh, to at the, at the packaging to keep the yeast from fucking doing anything else. Right. And maybe that's the way you get around it with bottling. I don't know. I don't like to bottle, but 
I do put it in the keg. Um, but the problem is then is you wouldn't be able to carbonate in the bottle. So, you know, you'd end up with a still back sweetened cider. Um, but what potassium sorbate does, as far as I understand, is it wraps around the yeast and it prevents, you know, it basically from, from replicating. So you don't, you don't have yeast replicating in your cider. So what you do is, um, you know, you add, I think it's about like two teaspoons of potassium sorbate to your finished five gallons. Um, you don't need to add another, uh, really that much of, of Camden to it, like maybe one to two tablets of Camden per five gallons to sulfate it. Assuming that, you know, anyone you're serving it to doesn't have sulfate sensitivities. Um, and then you, you know, you get it in there. Um, if you want to back sweeten, you can add, you know, one can of apple juice, frozen apple juice concentrate from the store to get it to off dry. Two cans if you want to make it semi-sweet and, you know, you can go from there. But I think it's about points, you know, for a, for a base level, it's about point, yeah, that point or whatever, six points of gravity that end up in the finished product. Um, and you do that and, uh, you know, you can, you know, force carbonate it and with the cold yeast activity is inhibited anyways. I haven't had any problems with re-fermentation. What I will say is that there are certain anecdotal evidence that I've heard when I've read about this of people who don't take those steps. And over time, they, they notice like the character of a keg cider changing. Like they'll say like it gets more acidic, it gets more buttery. And that's normally like, and I believe like an aspect of the fact that fermentation is continuing, albeit at a slower pace. So it depends how fast you go through the batch, but I don't know. I mean, like, I would say, like, if I were packaging a cider that wasn't of my mixed fermentation, that I would definitely take the steps of adding potassium sorbate and, you know, a couple Camden tablets to slow things down in addition to the cold. What I will say is Joe from our homebrew club has said he never does that. He just chills it out, and he um, he was one of the people who said, oh, yeah, I know this is a little changed. And I was like, well, maybe you should take these steps, and he seemed a little dismissive of that, but... I would say, like, definitely if you want to lock in the flavor profile of your finished cider, add those two things. You know, something I've noticed um, in the, you know, the few ciders I brewed, I, I'm not a huge cider fan, uh, personally, um, you know, making it to to consume. You know, I, I much rather drink beer, but I, I do tend to make cider once a year. And again, I, I basically use the process that you were talking about. But what I've noticed is I'll make five gallons of it. Um, I'll put it on draft after about, uh, you know, three or four week fermentation. I'll get it on draft and then I'll get sick of drinking it and want to drink something else that I made. I'll pull it off draft, th throw it in the basement and then throw it back on the following year. And it's freaking awesome. Like it's, it's, it's so much better. It's it that 10, 11 months of sitting and conditioning that makes it like I, I just finished the one that I made in 2019 uh, just a few days ago, actually. And it was drinking pretty good. It was nice and clear, really refreshing, held some strong, good apple flavor. Uh, but just that conditioning period did it wonders. Yeah, I think like, you know, again, with time and all things, I mean, you're going to get oxidation. You're going to get that extended fermentation, which is going to clean up a lot of, you know, any off flavors that are in there are going to get completely cleaned up by the yeast. The yeast is going to completely settle out and you end up with like a really nice refined finished product. And again, it's been marinating for a while. So you're going to get like all those chemical changes in there that, that create that bouquet that 
that you're going to end up with. So I would say that, yeah, like, you know, if you have the time, definitely give it the time because I think that the the young setters are perfectly drinkable and crushable, but the, the best comes from like a six month plus fermentation. All right. Silly question. So we're, we're talking about doing this with apples. Mm-hmm. I mean, can I crush up a bunch of strawberries and do the same thing? Like is, are other fruits created equally? Have you done any of that? I haven't done that, but I think that that falls in the category of fruit wines and stuff. Why is it different? Yeah, sorry, sorry that's it. You've piqued my you've piqued my curiosity. What the hell is the difference between apple wine and apple cider? I think it's gravity, really. Just I mean, like adding again, a ton like of sugar. Cider making, cider making is is extremely similar to to wine making. I mean, like a lot of the techniques are the same. A lot of the chemicals are the same. A lot of the processes are the same. I mean, I don't really know anything. You know. I don't really know that cider is, is, is exceedingly different from a, from a fruit wine other than the gravity. But certainly other fruits play really well with cider. Um, one that you may not expect is oranges. Um, and if you want a commercial example of that, uh, I believe, uh, what's the place in uh, Eastie um, that there's a cider work in East Boston? I'm trying down to remember east what is now. Yeah, down east. You know what down yeah, east is? Yeah, Down East. Down East has a cider, I believe it's their Down East White, which is made with oranges. Um, but orange juice is actually like a really interesting addition to ciders and can make something like, or, I mean, I would say like I would go to oranges more than other things. I mean, other things will add like their fruit characteristic. I think the oranges adds like a nice like tartness, like and just a, a bright characteristic to cider that I, I really think pushes it to the next level. So certainly if you can get your hands on that, I know they have it at the tap room. I don't know if they distribute it, but that's a, that's a great cider too. Well, what, what's so, a peri? A peri is a pear um, fermented. So pears are, extru- you know, very similar to, to apples. Um, and, you know, again, peri making is, from what I understand, far, far, far more difficult than cider making. And I'm not sure why. Um, but, uh, but again, you can, I don't think you can get pear juice, you know, easily. And probably that's part of the difficulty of the whole thing is that you need to get pears and stuff. And I'm sure there's some, some aspect to that, but you know, I don't know. I haven't really tried with pears much. I'm sure that would really accentuate things, but yeah, pears are just cider with pears. And when we were at HomebrewCon, I remember hearing, Oh yeah, Perry's are a nightmare to try and do, and and I don't remember exactly why, but um, I haven't made one, so I, I can't really comment. You know, what about a sizer? Oh, yeah. uh, sizer is a fruited cider, right? I, I'm asking you, buddy. <laughs> no, I literally have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I've gone. You know, I haven't really experimented in that. Yeah, I think like a sizer is a fruited cider. It's either that or it's one that's like. You know, accentuated with honey. Uh, those are my two guesses on what a sizer is. But you know, oh, a sizer is a, uh, a it's a mead that's been fermented with apple juice rather than water. You know, the the combo uh, that I see a lot with ciders is um, cranberries, uh, cranberries with apple cider. So sure, they're extremely tannic and, and tart. So, like again, I think that plays well into the. You know, if you can't get heritage or these funky apples, that that would be a really good adjunct. And you put a little Fleetwood Mac on in the background and you're in good shape. <laughs> Absolutely. Stardust woman. Baby. I don't know about everybody else here, but I'm ready to be a cider maker. Let's do it. 
uh, who is it? Uh, Carlson Orchards uh, just announced, what was it, two weeks ago? You can go get cider from out there. Um, that place is great because you just you take your bucket out to them. They've got a big 500-gallon tank. They open a valve, and they just fill your bucket up with unpasteurized, um, unsorbated cider. And you just throw in your five Camlin tablets, and you're good to go. Or not. I mean, like, I would absolutely, like, let it rip at that point and see what you get out of it. Switzer just did that. He just did that. He Switzer just did his side-by-side where he's just letting it roll, letting whatever yeast is in there do its thing. And then another five gallons was using uh, your harvested wild yeast. Right, because you have that biome where you've got yeast that can ferment that type of sugar naturally in that environment on the apple skins. And when everything is crushed into cider, you know, that's the advantage of getting a cider over juice is that, like, it gets mixed in there and left to its own devices. You know, you're probably going to end up with something like, you know, the way nature intended it to be. So the first time, well, not the first time, but one of the first times I um, got cider from Carlson Orchards, I got 15 gallons and I did uh, 10 gallons or five gallons with an ale yeast, five gallons with the Cote de Blanc, and then I left five gallons alone. And I swear to God, it looked like Mountain Dew after about three months. It was this Ooh. weird green, yellow. yellow, green color. Um, it had um, the smell was horrendous. Just pouring that carboy down the drain um, was was awful. That just was horrible. I had to bleach my yeah, skin. You know, you can end up with, with apple orchards being close to, you know, livestock and you're yeah. going to get some of those, that cross-contamination in there, which is the reason to go, like, if you really want to start with a clean slate, I would go with the, the, the five Camden tablets. Yep. You know, just start with and give it 24 hours. I have never not put the Camden tablets in after that one. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I, I'd bet that there are some raw ciders that ferment great, but oh, I'm sure, sure yeah. you're, you're just taking that risk. It's extraordinarily yeast dependent too, right? Like there's some right. yeast that work better with unpasteurized ciders. Um, the ones that, that hop, you know, to mind are like the Weizen yeast. Like, I feel like because they're used to chewing through whatever wheat, that maybe they're good through chewing through this stuff and out-competing it because of how aggressive wheat yeasts are. I think, like, they're just able to, like, out-compete all those funky yeasts and, like, give you, like, a really nice end product while at the same point being able to do their thing and and give you something. So I would recommend if you're not going to sulfate, like, maybe you go with, like, a very fast-acting, aggressive yeast. You know, I was just thinking that... uh when you get your cider, it's uh, well before the frost, uh, usually. So um, there are all kinds of crazy things out in the air. And um, when you have a cool ship uh, for beer to collect those wild yeasts, usually the cool ship, you want to do that after the the nighttime temperatures have dropped down below into the, I think it's down into the 30s, right? You want a frost or a hard yeah. freeze at least. So that might be uh, one uh one reason why my cider went to shit. If you want like a, a good way to test this, right? Like what you can do is you can go buy five gallons of cider, right? If they're packaged and mm-hmm. put them in a place where it's probably like, I would say like you probably want to put it in the 60 to 70 degree Fahrenheit range, right? And see which you got to watch them, right? Cause they will explode, but you can see which ball like start to pulse. Right. And when you do that, you can test, like that's almost like a test fermentation in itself. 
and you can taste the flavors that you're getting off of that. And if it's completely noxious, then just toss it. But that hasn't been my experience. It's like very, like very rare that you're going to get that, but you can end up with, you know, if you go buy five gallons of cider, like I've had like maybe one or two, three of them pop. Like they start getting like, you know, the, yeah. the jugs are getting swollen and the other ones, you know, maybe not so much. So you start being able to like see which, you know, gallons have the most aggressive yeast and you can kind of cultivate it that way. And that was part, I think, of like me developing the mixed culture that I did was like trying to, you know, do some sort of little mini survivor thing and, and get these things going. But, you know, right now I got a good culture and, and I like it and I don't know what the yeast are and I haven't examined it at all, but, but it works well. Awesome. Well, I, Steve, I mean, this has been some uh, really great conversation. I mean, I, I, I've, I've certainly gotten a lot for it and I think the folks that are listening to it are going to uh, get a ton for it. So we really appreciate you uh, coming out and spending some time and, you know, getting out of the dungeon uh, out in Ohio to, to talk with us for a little bit. Yeah. Anytime. And I, you know, I especially want to commend you for behaving because we, we you know, uh, those that don't know Stephen, uh, you're a bit of a firecracker and a wild card for us. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed in how tame you were able to, to, and composed you're able to keep yourself today. So, so good. I mean, there was a few, a few times, a few times we got a little, a little edgy, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, not, you know, uh, personally, I, I would have expected not expected. I would have uh, loved to see a little bit more of that heinous, raw Stephen come out, but we'll save that for a future episode. Yeah. Invite me back again, man. And all bets are off. Yeah. Let's, let's get an audience and some sponsors on board before we let the real Stephen out. All right, guys. Hey, thanks again. <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to, to the next one. Good, uh, great job. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Next week, we're going to have Nick and TJ joining us for a 2020 year in review and to talk some New Year's resolutions. And Nick is going to judge an American porter. So stay tuned for next week here on Strike Mash Boil. The Strike Mash Boil podcast is produced by the Merrimack Valley Homebrew Club, an American Homebrewers Association sanctioned club. Follow us on Instagram at MVHBC. Join the conversation in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash MVHBC. And check out our website at MVHBC.com. Thanks to Patrick and Steven for joining us again this week. Still working on the plan for next week's show, so stay tuned for more Strike Mash Boil. Horrible. God damn it, Patrick. You know...